I'll never forget the first time that I ever had to stand before a judge. Even though it was for a very minor traffic violation, it was still incredibly uncomfortable. And I remember being very nervous. Although, uh, admittedly, the judge did, in fact, end up showing me a a decent amount of mercy, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. And the reason I didn't know what to expect is because I didn't know him. I didn't know who this person was. I didn't know what kind of a mood he was in, what his view of justice was. All I knew is what I deserved. The only thing that I thought in light of that would have maybe made that situation easier for me is if the same person who was called upon to be my judge was someone who knew me and loved me. If this person was sort of already on my side, already for me, I imagine that my day of judgment would have been a lot more sweet. And if you think about it, that is the blessing for every true believer in Jesus Christ. That the one that we will stand before on judgment day will be our Savior who has already released us from our sins. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30, we will read together. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30, Thus saith the Lord. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. The entire chapter of John chapter 5 is really one single unit that shouldn't be broken up. It begins with a story of Jesus healing a lame man, which leads to this lengthy monologue, a defense, if you will, as Jesus is tried by his accusers. And so in an ideal world, the whole chapter would really be preached at one time. Um, But I knew that I could do no such thing. 
There's just too much rich, deep, and important theology scattered throughout this chapter to try and tackle in one sermon. And so I've broken it up into three parts. But the, the, the consequence of that is there's going to inevitably be some overlap to all of the sermons in John 5 because they really are just one cohesive thought and presentation from Jesus. And so before we move into new material, I want to just discuss what is some of the overlap that's happening in this text versus last week. And one of the primary similarities is that Jesus is continuing to offer more proofs and explanations of his deity. So last week we looked at the primary message being that Jesus is claiming to be equal to the Father. He's claiming to be God. And that's very much what's still happening here. This is still a defense of his deity. And it's, it, the, whole, the whole passage we read is a defense of deity. Every single verse is pointing to it. I, I want to point to what I think are some of the overlooked ones. Some of my favorite ones are found in verses 22 through 23. Read those with me. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Here is another clear testimony to Christ's deity. Uh, it, it quite frankly could not be more clear. Christ is claiming to be worthy of the same worship, love, and obedience as God himself. He's saying, whatever you think of God and however you treat God, you need to think of me the exact same way and you need to treat me the exact same way. He's basically saying, you need to treat me as God. Were anyone else to say this, it would be utter blasphemy and if you were to obey, it would be horrible idolatry. Because the Bible is very clear that God will share his glory with no one. Just one example from Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. God has not permitted the worship of God to be given to anybody else. You cannot worship someone as if they are God, if they're not God. And Jesus, as an Old Testament Jew, knows this. He is claiming to be God. He's saying, you must worship me, you must honor me the same way you honor God. So like I said, like last week, Jesus is still very much teaching his own deity in this text. Although uh, we're technically summarizing, but I do want to point out a unique way that he's pointing to his deity different from last week. Last week, we, we, we tried to dive as deep as we could into the doctrine of eternal generation. And Jesus proves his deity by teaching us the doctrine of eternal generation. And we talked about how it's a really complex doctrine and it's been lost, mostly lost on sort of 21st century Western Christianity. And in today's passage, there's another very, very complex, important, yet forgotten doctrine of the Trinity uh, that Jesus is teaching us here known as inseparable operations. So eternal generation was the deep, complex doctrine last week. This week, it's sort of a new one known as inseparable operations. Look at verse 19 with me. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, unfortunately, time doesn't permit us today to get into all of the nuances and details and questions about inseparable operations. That would really require more like a sermon series on the Trinity. But I can at least just afford a brief uh, introduction. 
What Jesus is claiming in verse 19 is that he and the Father do the exact same work. The language is, is, is tricky, but it's very clear. Jesus is not saying that I do work similar to that the Father does, like we do similar works. He's saying what the Father is doing is the exact same thing I'm doing. I see it, and I do likewise. Jesus and the Father are performing the same work. So in other words, their work is inseparable. Or you could say their operations are inseparable. It's not as if Jesus goes off and does this one thing, and then the Father goes off and does that thing, and then they sort of tag team it. I'll take this task, you take that task. No, Jesus is doing whatever the Father is doing. You can't separate that. Their work, their operations are inseparable. They share the same work. Now, this is very difficult for our minds to grasp. And one of the reasons we know that is because Jesus has to sort of lower the language here and speak in metaphor, right? He, he uses this metaphor of seeing the works of the Father. That's how he describes it. The Father shows his works to the Son, and the Son sees them and does likewise. This is metaphor, right? In other words, you should not think of this as Jesus is in heaven with a notepad, and then the Father is sort of like play acting out the incarnation, and Jesus is like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Oh, okay, I'll do that. He's not literally seeing the works and then puppeteering them later on. This is Jesus just the metaphorical way for Jesus to communicate this metaphysical reality to us that what the Father is doing, that work is communicated and shared to the Son so that he receives the work from the Father and performs it with him, that they are doing the same work. Now, I know it can be frustrating to like hear for the first time a difficult doctrine and you've probably got all these questions and thoughts. But just let me tell you, there is some com there's, there's a couple comforting things about this doctrine. The first one is that it will just quite frankly help you to make sense of a lot of many different verses in your Bible that you probably didn't even realize were, at least from a distance, contradictory. Right? Let me give you uh, an example, just one of those examples. So the Apostle Peter tells us, that the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. In his sermon in Acts, he says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by dead. So Jesus rose from the dead. Who did that? Who rose him from the dead? What's the right answer? God did. The Father raised the Son. So apparently Peter and Paul are not on the same page because we have another holy apostle who disagrees with Peter. The Apostle Paul tells us the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Father, through the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, according to Paul. Peter says that God did it directly. But we, they must both be wrong. Because Jesus tells us that he raised himself from the dead. John chapter 10, we're going to see this later on. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So who raised Jesus from the dead? The Bible gives you three answers. The Father did it, the Spirit did it, the Son did it. Which one did it? The answer is yes. Because the works of the Trinity are inseparable. The Trinity is one God in unity performing His work. 
The works are inseparable. It will help you to understand some of these descriptions. And it, by the way, it's not just the raising of the dead. The Bible does this all over the place. Some passage will speak of the Father as the creator. Some passage will speak of the Son as the creator. Some will speak of the Father creating through the Son. Some passages will say the Spirit dwells in you. Some passages will say Christ dwells in you. Some will say Christ dwells in you through the Spirit. All of that language through. The Father creates through the Son. The, the Son dwells through the Spirit. This is the Bible's way of trying to say that the Trinity shares a work in unity. The three persons are doing these things together. The Father created through the Son. The Spirit dwells through, or Christ dwells through the Spirit. You can't separate them. If you've got the Spirit, you've got the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Spirit. You cannot separate the Trinity. Their works and their essence are inseparable. Now, there are ways that we could nuance it, but again, without going any deeper, let me just also say another reason why I love this doctrine. This doctrine really helps remind us that our triune God truly is one. Uh, in other words, the way I thought about it before I really started learning about some of these deeper Trinitarian concepts is I think it's really easy for Christians to when they think of God in their head, they really think of three gods. But then they just call it one God because they know they're supposed to. So in my head, we've got three gods, Father, Son, and Spirit, but the Bible says there's only one, so I'll just call them one God. But we don't ever really learn how do we articulate, how do we actually articulate, how is it that these three are one? And there's, there's lots of different ways we do that. And inseparable operations is one of them. We don't have three people with their own minds and their own thoughts and their own decisions going off and doing their own things, and then we just call that one God. There is one essence and one work that is being performed by one God in unity and that one essence and that one work is shared by all three persons. They're doing the same thing and they are the same essence. Inseparable operations just help scratch the surface and in getting into that deeper level of how do we understand three persons in unity. Not just, do, not just have the same goals in mind but actually are one. Inseparable operations helps us to get there. And so in short, the reason Jesus brings up inseparable operations in this text is because he's trying to do the same thing he did with eternal generation last week, which is communicate a very simple truth to us. He and the Father are one. He is equal to the Father. There is a distinction between them, but we are to honor him as the Father. We too are to worship him as the Father. He is equal to God. That was our theme last week, and he is reiterating it this week. But that ends our summary because Jesus does press into new territory in this part of his dialogue, or his monologue, really. Jesus is really, inseparable operations is, is, is functioning all throughout this text, but it's almost in the background. He's really trying to, to push something different in terms of what is Jesus emphasizing in this text. And what he's really emphasizing are greater works. So last week, what began this whole discussion was Jesus did some pretty amazing things to testify of his deity. And as he goes on defense of those things, he essentially tells them, by the way, if you think those things were impressive, you haven't seen anything yet. Look at verses 20 through 23 with me. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one 
but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus tells them there are greater works coming. I am going to, with my Father, do greater things than even turning water into wine or healing a paralyzed man. And so really for our sermon, I want us to look at what are these greater things? What are the, the greater works that Jesus is going to show and is in some capacity is already showing that most definitively demands we accept him as being equal to the Father? And these two works is that Jesus will raise the dead and judge the world. Jesus is going to raise the dead and judge the world. Now, Jesus, clearly, the way he in interlinks all this, he sees these as really an interrelated process. But to make things simple for us, I'm going to separate them into two actions. And so we're going to focus on those two things. Jesus, as the Messiah, in other words, to kind of reframe it, and if, you like, if you like to take notes, here's a better way to frame it. Jesus is telling us two things about himself, two ways that we need to relate to Jesus. And we need to relate to him as our Savior and as our judge. We relate to Christ as Savior and as judge. Let's begin with Christ as Savior. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So one of the divine works that Jesus will perform to prove, to prove his deity is giving life to the dead. He has the Father's nature, and therefore he now has the same power and the same authority as the Father to raise the dead. But if you'll notice, I switched my language from resurrection to Savior. Why did I do that? Well, because Jesus in this text clearly understands the giving of life, the resurrection of life, as a two-part salvation process. Jesus is talking about his ability to save us. Giving people life is just a synonym for salvation. And Jesus sees a kind of two-staged salvation process that he has the power and the authority to give. And so the first one is that Jesus' authority and power as God gives him the ability to resurrect us spiritually. Jesus resurrects us spiritually. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The whole circumstances that kicked off this defense was that Jesus healed a man's body simply with his word. Do you recall that? The text does not indicate that he touched the man or made dirt with spit and put it on his legs. He, with a word, he spoke and the man's body had life. And now we see what kind of a metaphor that is for salvation. Those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live merely with a word. Merely with his voice, he gives life to our spirits. He heals our spirits. He resurrects our spirits. Now, the reason I'm saying that this is a spiritual resurrection, because some, some people think that this is a reference to the future physical resurrection, but I don't think so. Because of the way Jesus qualifies that this work is not just a future work, it's already happening. It's already happening. 
It's now here. So that's why I'm saying there's sort of a two-stage resurrection. There's a resurrection we're going to talk about in a second that's totally in the future. It hasn't happened yet. But there's resurrections happening all around us even now. And that is our dead spirits, dead in sins, are being resurrected. The very language that Paul uses, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, when he describes us as having been made alive in Christ, we who once were dead in our trespasses and sins... Jesus is telling us that he has the power to give life to our dead, sinful spirits. We call this regeneration. He regenerates us. Spiritually, he gives us life. But that's only the first part of our salvation. Because connected with the spiritual resurrection is this inseparable future physical resurrection, which he does eventually turn his attention to. Look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now we know that Jesus has shifted from spiritual resurrection to physical, and we know that because of his reference to the tombs. Those who have come out of the tombs, literally, people are going to come out of their graves at the word of Jesus. Merely by a word, he is going to raise the dead bodily for all eternity. So the reason I'm saying the first way we relate to Jesus as Savior is because the the concept of resurrection is a broad term where we simply think of Christ as the author of life. Christ is the one who gives you life. He gives life to your spirit. He gives life to your bodies. He gives you the salvation of life. He has the power and ability to raise the dead spiritually and physically. And again, the key emphasis is that he's able to do this because he's God. This isn't just like a power God works through him. He's doing it as God himself. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is a really marvelous verse. Very confusing, very weighty, but very marvelous. So as God, Jesus is claiming to have life in himself. In other words, life is not something he possesses the way we do. In other words, life never comes to Jesus. It always comes from Jesus. You see, you and me, we had to receive life from God. And this is pictured in Genesis when God creates Adam. Remember, he creates his body first, and then what does he do? He breathes into his nostrils. Adam does not have life in himself. Adam needed an outside source to breathe life into him. So Adam is borrowing life. And all of us, the children of Adam, we are borrowing life. God has given us life. We are the recipients of it. It's not in us in and of ourselves. It comes to us. Christ is saying, life did not come to me. It's in me. Just like it's in God, I am, I have life in myself. There's, this is actually an attribute of God. When we study the attributes of God, it comes from a Latin word, ase, so we call it aseity. God has aseity. And aseity means to be self-existent and self-dependent. God does not depend on anything outside of himself for his existence. 
You and me, on the other hand, are very dependent creatures. If it wasn't for God, you wouldn't exist. If it wasn't for your parents, you wouldn't exist. If it wasn't for water, you wouldn't exist. If it wasn't for air, you wouldn't exist. If it wasn't for a beating heart, you wouldn't exist. I could go on and on and on and on. We are dependent. One thing goes and we go with it. God is totally independent. There's nothing you can take away that would affect or change God. He exists in and of himself. He has life in himself. And Jesus is saying, just like God is Ase, he has life in himself, because of eternal generation, because I have received the same essence from the Father, I have aseity too. I have life in myself. And this is why he's able, according to him, to raise the dead, including raising himself from the dead. It's not a logical contradiction that Jesus raised himself from the dead because he is life itself. He has life and therefore he can give it. You see, you and I, we can't raise the dead because we don't have any life to give. We're already borrowing it. But Jesus has life in and of himself. And so that's why, again, I'm emphasizing, he is not saying, like, God has given me the power to raise the dead. Because that does happen to humans. God has given the apostles. The apostle Paul raised someone from the dead. There are prophets in the Old Testament who raise people from the dead. Human beings can raise people from the dead, but not in and of themselves. Not on their own strength, not on their own life. God has to communicate that power to them, and then they do it through. God does it through them. Jesus is saying something far more radical in this verse. He's saying, not that God has sort of passed on this life to me and then I raise. He's saying, I have it in and of myself. I raise the dead on my own authority from the life that I have always had eternally. And so, in short, Jesus is proving his divinity by claiming to be something that only God can be, which is the Savior of the world. Because only God has life in and of himself, and so he is the only one who can give salvation life to his people. When Jesus is claiming to be Savior, he's claiming to be God. He is our Savior. But that's not all he's claiming to be in this text. He's claiming another divine prerogative, which is that Jesus is claiming not just to be the world's savior, but its judge. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Jewish leaders of John chapter 5 failed to see the tragic irony that they have officially just tried to put the judge of all the universe on trial. They've totally reversed their roles. They have tried to bring Jesus to a defense and Jesus is subtly trying to tell them, that's my job. I'm not on trial here. You are. I am the judge. Jesus has taken on this divine prerogative which only God has that he is claiming to be the judge of the world. All human beings and all angels will stand before Jesus of Nazareth. He even reminds us in verse 27, by the way, that in a sense what he's saying is not so radical. Daniel prophesied this a long time ago. Verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We, we, John used this earlier in his book, but just as to refresh our memories, the term son of man comes from a prophecy in Daniel. 
where Daniel prophesied that a human being, that's what the word son of man means, some special human being would ascend into heaven and be seated at God's right hand and God would give that man, that human being, all power and all authority and all dominion. And so the logic is, if the son of man, this human being, has all power, authority and dominion, it logically follows that he's the world's judge. He owns it after all. He has dominion over it. He has authority over it. So it makes sense he would be the world's judge. Jesus is trying to say, why is this so radical to you? Your scriptures have already prophesied that a human Messiah would ascend to heaven and judge the world. You should have already been believing this. It's not that radical of an idea for you. But nonetheless, they're in disbelief. And so he has to remind them that as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he has been given all authority and we will all stand before the man Christ Jesus on Judgment Day. And as I alluded to in the introduction, you know it's the really good news that Jesus is judge. This means that the final climactic judgment of all of history is going to be just. Doesn't that matter? We live in a world of so much sin and so much brokenness. Sometimes our human courts catch it. A lot of times they don't. And even when they do catch it, a lot of times the judgment is unfair in one direction or the other. And even when the judgment is fair, what they have not done is truly made it right. Aren't we all just naturally longing for a day when everything is made right? How horrible would it be if Judgment Day, the day when everything is literally supposed to be reversed and finally made right, was left to an incompetent man who couldn't get the job done? How terrifying would that be? To know that there are injustices that will forever be injustices. But because the Son of Man is judged, we have great hope and confidence that it will be just. That it will be perfect. Nothing will slip through the cracks. And the text actually alludes to this in two ways. It reminds us of two different ways of how we can trust that the judgment of Christ will be perfect. The first one is found in verse 30. Let's read verse 30 together. I guess it's the second, it's the one I want to start with. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. The first reason that we can trust the judgment day will be, judged, will be just is because Christ's judgment is God's judgment. Because he is God's son he, and he's only seeing and doing what he sees the father doing, all of his judgments are exactly as the father would judge. That means that they will be omniscient. He will know all things. He will know all the details. He will know everything that happened in secrecy. He will have full knowledge and they will be good. Because that's who God is. God can't not be omniscient and good. So we know that Christ, as the one working inseparably with the Father, is going to have an omniscient, good, just judgment of the world. Because he is giving God's judgment of the world. This is no mere man left to judge the world. It is God himself. But the text also indicates that this perfect and divine justice will be vindicated. You don't even have to take my word for it. If you don't believe me, you're going to see it. Look at verses 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this. 
For an hour is coming when all who hear in the tombs, for all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We know, we will know that Christ's judgment is just because it will be done according to works. It will be manifestly vindicated. Now, this might sound like a problem to you from, from a distance, right? Because aren't we Protestants? Right? We're not Roman Catholics in this church. We're Protestants. So don't we teach that we're saved by grace through faith apart from works? How can Jesus send people to heaven or hell based on their good and evil? I thought our gospel was that we're saved apart from our good and our evil by faith and faith alone. So are we supposed to change our doctrine now? Does John 5 indicate that we're, we're actually saved by our works and not by our faith? To which I would say, not so fast. Uh, Jesus himself has already testified to our faith alone doctrine in this text. Right? Look at verse 24. And he even seals it with a vow. Okay? He's being very clear and very forceful here. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So how do you avoid judgment? How do you receive eternal life? Do a bunch of good works? No, you believe the gospel. You believe the word of Christ, which came from the Father. Believe Christ's word, and you're saved. Believe in Jesus, and you have passed from death to life. You have nullified your judgment. So Christ is very clear that we are saved by faith and faith alone. Hear, believe, saved. End of story. But that begs the question then, so how do we harmonize verse 24 with verse 30, a judgment based on works? The way I submit to you to understand this is to see our works not as meriting or earning salvation, but as the proof that salvation has been granted to us by our faith. Jesus judges by works so that he can vindicate his judgment about who is truly saved by faith. And let me submit to you, this is not so much of a stretch as it may sound at first to your ears. I would argue that God loves to work this way. Remember the story of Abraham? What is Abraham most known for? God commanded Abraham to kill his son Isaac, his special son, the son of the promise. And he made Abraham do this, and God explicitly says, tells us why. So that I may know that you fear me. That's what happens. God stops Abraham, and he says, stop, for now I know you fear me. Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know all things? Did God know the present state of Abraham's heart before he went up the mountain? Yes. And if you don't believe me, then you've got a problem on your hands because you've essentially made Jesus greater than the Father. Because we already learned in John chapter 2 that Jesus knows every man's heart perfectly. Remember the last three verses of John chapter 2? There's people who try to put their faith in Jesus, but the text says that the son did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in man and needed no one to testify about what was in man's heart. Jesus knows people's hearts perfectly. He knows whether you're being sincere or not. So obviously God the Father knows people's hearts perfectly. He knew that Abraham had faith, yet for some reason it was important for God to make Abraham prove it and to even treat Abraham as if he didn't know until he did prove it. Now I know. 
what I already knew. (laughs) That you fear me. And I would argue that that really is sort of a microcosm of how Jesus works on Judgment Day. On our Judgment Day, our good works will be proof of the life we already received by faith alone. In other words, on Judgment Day is when Christ will say to us, Now I know what I already knew, that you fear me. And now everybody knows it. Everybody knows my judgment is just because it has been laid manifest and bare. In other words, our works vindicate Christ's judgment. And and, and this is even a doctrine attached to the very text that people almost always go to when they want to prove sola fide. The, the, the main text is Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's sola fide. But then what comes right after it? For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were saved by faith so that you could do good works. Judgment Day, Jesus is reversing the process. How do I know you are saved by faith? Well, here's the good works that accompany it. If someone doesn't have the good works, then they've not been created in Christ Jesus. So our good works serve as like a proxy of our faith. Have you been saved by faith, faith through, by grace through faith apart from works? Yes, I have. How do I know that? How does Satan know that? How does the accuser know that? Jesus is going to prove it. He's going to manifest it. God prepared good works for us to work in. So when Jesus judges you by your works, he's really judging you by faith. He's judging you by your invisible faith made visible. So this is not like a meriting thing. It's not like, well, if I do a certain amount of good works, then I'll earn salvation. It's not how it's working. It's Jesus is going to declare you saved. And when the accuser says that person was wicked and Jesus is going to say, no, 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 I changed them. I made them something new. He is vindicating his works. We are not meriting his judgment. We are vindicating his judgment. And those are two very, very different things. And so really, in conclusion of all that, I I really think, I know I get loud, but we should take heart, saints. If you believe in Jesus, you don't need to fear the day of judgment. By your faith, you have already passed out out of judgment and into life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How sweet it is that our judge also happens to be our Savior. Our judge also happens to be the one who has already freed us from our sins. Our judge happens to be the one who has already declared us innocent. So you don't need to fear judgment day. So what should you do then? Like, if you're an unbeliever and you're hearing this text, you should be afraid. That's how you respond to this. You should be afraid and you should repent. But what if you're already a believer and you're not afraid? What do you do with this text? Is it worthless? Is it meaningless? Has no application in your life? The text gives us the application. Verses 22 through 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
God has done all this. He has made Jesus Savior. He has made Jesus judge to produce a particular result. And that result would be that we would honor Christ as God. God loves the Son so much that He in creation has made it our sole aim to love Him too. You were put on earth to enjoy Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. And so, why is Jesus our Savior and our judge? Well, because it's God's will for each and every one of us to come to Christ by faith, bringing Him our worship, our love, our obedience. So, come to the Son in gladness this morning, enjoying His salvation, worshiping Him as our God, our Savior, and our judge. 